Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. If we were called something like the Good Death Company, Mike, (laughs) you know, we'd probably have 3% of the population arriving and ready to talk to us and deal with us. But what we learned through um, a whole lot of research was that people need a pretty safe and reassuring and gentle entry to this topic and conversations about this topic. So that's really how we've we've tried to be really thoughtful about designing Violet to do that, both in terms of the brand, the name, and the way people experience um, our support program. Great to be back with you here, as always, and welcome back to another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose. First off, a big thank you to our major sponsor, Neon Treehouse, who are still the best digital agency on the planet Earth. They're doing a sterling job on all of our social media and marketing work and making us look far better than I ever could by myself. This week, I'm pleased to bring you my conversation with Melissa Reader. Melissa is the Managing Director and CEO of the Violet Initiative. Violet is a national not-for-profit providing information and support to help everyone in Australia navigate the last stages of life and the grief and loss that accompanies it. The Stoics encourage us to contemplate death regularly and that in doing so, we can prepare for it better and live a more fulfilled life. Epictetus to this end says, I cannot escape death, but at least I can escape the fear of it. I found Melissa's work at Violet so important to bring to the forefront the oft-taboo and neglected conversations and support systems needed around approaching end of life. A reminder that if you'd like to enjoy the podcast earlier than everyone else, without the annoying ads and with full transcripts, a personal audio audio note from me and a concierge service to be connected to our wonderful guests, you can become a Humans of Purpose member for the cost of a coffee each month. Check out the link in our show notes to learn more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Melissa as much as I did. Very much. What, what a pleasure. I'm so glad we could connect this morning, Melissa. How are you? I'm great, Mike. Thank you. No, it's really nice. I've admired your work for uh, quite a few years. So it's really nice to be on the show. Well, uh, comments are not uh, obligatory, but they're very much appreciated. So thank you very much for that. And um, our good friend Tom Hull um, introduced me to you and your fantastic work recently at Shared Value. That was a very nice per-chance introduction too. Yeah, um, Tom is uh, is just great in so many ways. So now I'm really grateful that he's connected us. Good to have quality connectors nearby for sure. Um, so, look, I do want to get into Violet and hear everything about what you're doing, but I would like, first of all, to hear a little bit about your journey into the space and what took you to where you are now. Yeah, it's um, you know, it's a bit of one of those origin stories, I guess, which are so much a part of um, these types of roles and this type of work, because I never really envisaged that I'd be um, running a not-for-profit that worked in this particular space. Um, I used to really do most of my work in consulting, in, in business strategy and brand strategy. But um, as you know, Mike, entrepreneurial journeys start from somewhere, right? They start from a moment or an experience that just has a big enough impact on you that you want to make a change and gets you out of bed for a different reason. Um, and I think that 
you know, um, having run at those those businesses that I um, spoke about, I was just living a pretty normal, regular life, I thought, with um, three kids and my husband, Maro. And he had a very unexpected and, and really aggressive cancer diagnosis when he was um, 39. Just came totally out of the blue and was obviously really difficult for all of us to um, to manage for all of the obvious reasons. But um one of the toughest parts about the 15 months of his illness was that we just couldn't talk about it. We just couldn't have any kind of honest and open conversation about what was really going on. And that was um, between ourselves as, you know, as a couple, it was with, with our families and it was also with his medical team. So it just kind of unfolded into a really chaotic period where he just bounced in and out of hospital for many months and had a whole lot of surgeries and treatments away from us, away from his home, probably pretty lonely and distressing time for him, certainly for us. And um, we were totally unprepared uh, for his death, both practically and emotionally. So it meant that he died in an intensive care setting, which is you know, pretty distressing place to tie. It's not really where you want to spend your last um, last moments. And we didn't even have a will. Like so many things went wrong. So um, coming out of that, I guess, as a now single self-employed mother of three kids. It was both emotionally and administratively really, really tough. And it's never going to be an easy thing, but it could have been so much better. So that has led me to try and build a national community support initiative that helps people have a better experience. Well, I, I don't want this to come across the wrong way, but I do really like speaking to people who create something based out of a personal challenge they've had. I think that's very meaningful and actually makes for a much more informed and interesting and impactful organisation. So um, I'm very sorry to hear about your loss, and that's obviously a very difficult situation. Um, but I think what you've highlighted is such an interesting space that is so underdeveloped. And just in the way that you sort of tell that story, I mean, you must have been grappling with um, where do I find the right words, the right frameworks, the right sort of systems and processes to go through, and even just the the human response. I mean, how do you know how to navigate that? Were these sorts of things that you were sort of grappling with at the time? Yeah, and some of them uh, you're not even aware that you should be grappling with them. You know, you're really, uh, I think this was certainly the case with us and, and with so many, and particularly with people facing um, a terminal cancer diagnosis, you, you're really trying to stay in the in the place of hope and positivity that you're, the person that you love will um, at least stay as well as they are today, you know. Uh, and so to actually be able to gently accept and acknowledge that their situation is terminal requires a totally different mindset. Uh, and I think most people need a bit of help with that. And yeah. that's often hard to come by in the medical world. Um, yeah. And I think also, you know, so much of our literature and our way of being is that um, whenever there's a challenge, you just douse it in optimism. Um, and yeah. th that kind of that kind of response is interesting, but not very helpful in a terminal situation, especially end of life situation. There's only so much of it that people can probably hear before they're like, are you not understanding this at all? And I think so much gets lost, you know, when you do stay in that um surely things will be okay as they as they are today because you know time becomes the most precious thing there is and if you're not aware of that you don't use that time really wisely so that's where i think a lot of regrets are born um but i don't want to just put this conversation in the context of of cancer diagnosis because you know when you think about this issue 
at a societal level, our aging population is the biggest biggest challenge that we face because frailty is you know, a pretty unfamiliar concept, but elderly people are increasingly frail and frailty is a life-limiting illness you know, unto itself. Um, so it's it's how how do we think about this more bravely and more openly and more honestly as a as a nation, as a society that's facing into an aging population where the number of people dying each year is going to double within 20 years. All the systems are pretty stretched and constrained as they are today. Um, so so now is definitely the time to get some uh, real and very constructive change. I suppose the uh, level of complexity late in life as well with uh, many Australians suffering from a number of chronic illnesses through their lifetime and towards the end of life means that they're not just going to all be um you know, I don't want to say easy deaths, but they might be particularly complex uh, life and death situations. Uh, I think the other thing to sort of acknowledge is that we're all going to die at some point, and that's very confronting for a lot of people who are maybe not in that, um, not yet in that space, but may have relatives who might be approaching that time in life. And we really are not equipped um, as people or, or as a nation to know how to have conversations that don't like. I, I suppose we know basically when it's happening, uh, how to kind of dance around it, but how do we know how to prepare and how to actually have those in-depth helpful dialogues around that and the resources? That's right, at, at the right, right moments in time. Um, it's how do we kind of talk, plan, prepare and care for each other. Uh, and it's not a one in 20, one in 10, one in five issue. You know, it's something that we will all need and go through and we'll go through it multiple times as we care for our parents and our partners and our family members and our friends and then you know at the right moment in time inevitably face our own death so it's you know probably the last real taboo we've made such amazing progress over issues like mental health which we couldn't talk about either yep. 15 years ago didn't have the language had a whole lot of stigmatized terms didn't know how to wrap support and services around people I think the work has of normalization has largely been done when I hear about my kids and the way they talk about their mental health, um, it's just so vastly different to what I grew oh, up. It's so different. It's so different. And even for myself, I mean, I, I'm 38 now and I remember in high school having a lot of challenges around mental health and well-being, and just there was no, even the words mental health, I'm not sure were popular in the lexicon back then. So there was actually not a way to really describe how you were feeling. Um, and you know, there wasn't the sort of support or the, you know, the the Beyond Blues and all these sorts of things. Movembers were not around as much. And even trying to raise a conversation around something that was so stigmatised, it was more like, oh, there's just probably something physically wrong with you and you, you're probably just a, a teenager who's going through a tough time. Imagine trying to have those conversations in the workplace back yeah. then. Unheard no. of. You'd, you'd lose Unheard your of. So yeah. we've made so much amazing progress, and and that's that's really what we're trying to do here. It's about thinking about a life stage, you know, not just necessarily thinking about the event of death, but thinking about the last twelve months or so of someone's life and what's really important and what do we need to be thinking about, talking about, and planning for, so that that can really be the best it can be for everyone. So when you talk about normalising the conversations around um, end of life, is is the best analogy perhaps the evolution of mental health and how that's changed in this space? Yeah, it's certainly the one that we lean on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other one is birth. You know, so much has changed around the way women give birth over the last 30 years. That's been really community-led um, in terms of the progress that's been made. So those two parallels, you know, I'm often waving my arms and talking about those things <laughs> pretty regularly. 
I would love to see you wave your arms and talk about those things regularly. <laughs> I mean, I, I can give my own um, example. You know, we went through um, IVF and um, had our son Marlo, but before we were having troubles conceiving, it took us about a year to con conceive. Um, we thought we were very much alone in that journey. And then only through taking the, the, the brave or the bold step to just put it out there and say to your friends, look, this is what we're going through. Uh, we found out that something like 40% plus of our friends have had at least one child through IVF um, and have been through that journey as well. So that opened us up to a whole community of other people experiencing those stigmatized, um, just doing some air quote, um, you know, challenges there. Yeah. And when I, when I say stigmatized in this space, perhaps I mean a bit taboo and under discussed might be the better terminology. Just uncomfortable subjects that people would just try and work around or avoid or switch off the radio station. You know, that's um, that's definitely the space we're in. But there are there are there are really promising areas that we can point to where we have done a better job of that. And um, you know, we think, and a lot of others that are on the journey with us, it's time for this this to really be pushed forward. And I think your point there around connection with your experience, my technology has has a huge role to play here, and there really hasn't been enough innovation and, uh, and tech-enabled solutions um, to help in this area either. A lot of, lot of good stuff happening, but not enough happening yet. As far well, as I mean, the difference now is that um, if you are experiencing a particular problem or, you know, even if you don't have friends that are, that are having that same problem, you can go on Facebook groups and find a community of people who are all facing that problem. And I suppose in a way, you know, technology brings us together. It also pushes us apart in some nefarious ways. Yeah. but. Yeah. I, I think I think for particular challenges, uh, it does offer some certain outlets or the ability to kind of uh, normalise, as you say, the experience, destigmatise. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so, look, I mean, it is it's kind of oxymoronic in a way to talk about having to normalise the experience of dying because we all die. It's sort of that that in a way is how it's different from the other examples. So yeah. where, whereas there might be alternative paths to giving birth or um, many people won't experience mental health issues in their life, um, everyone is going to die. Um, unless maybe Elon Musk figures something out that we, <laughs> have, we haven't thought of yet. He, he's a good chance to live forever, maybe Bezos as well. Um, assuming the rest of us do die, why should this be something that has to be normalised? Why haven't? Why, why isn't this already something that is happening in society around that kind of discussions about death and the nature of that last back nine of life? Well, maybe I'll answer that in two two parts because um, I have the same question: Why has this not already been done? Yeah. I'm starting to understand that it is bloody hard work, <laughs> and that is certainly part of it. But I think you know we have. Over over recent decades, we have relied on either our doctor or our priest to make sense of this, and and both of those things have changed and are changing. And we've got a very medicalized, institutionalized experience of death now. On one hand, and I think it's hard to argue that society's relationship with religion, or even dare I say, reliance on religion, is shifting. So those two things look really different over recent decades, and and it is it's it's necessary for for something new. Um, to kind of come up and 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 um, be available to people to help them as they go through this. So um, I think the time is right, but it is really hard work. You know, it's hard to, it, unless you've been through this, it's hard for people to A, want to talk about it or B, connect to it or C, want to prioritise it. 
So when people are facing these challenges now, maybe on a personal or family level, I know you talked about religion and sort of um, we can talk about the secularization of society a little bit and our reliance on the, the medical model a little bit more, but are there sort of um, therapists or people or, or um, quasi sort of um, talk therapy people that help in these areas? Yeah, there's um look, I, first of all, I don't want to in any way discount the incredible work that does happen in clinical settings because palliative care, the work of palliative care and uh, people working in, a, in aged and home care and a whole lot of medical specialties do incredible work. But uh, it, it is, um, it's heavily medical in its focus and people's non-medical or non-clinical needs are just really overlooked often. And there's some good research that that highlights the fact that those non-clinical needs around conversations, people not feeling lonely, people feeling well supported, they actually rank pretty pretty highly um, in the last stage of life. So I just just wanted to make that point um, yes. really clear. But there are, there are, yeah, there are also um, death doulas, you know, which are kind of the equivalent of midwives um, oh. that do incredible work. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting kind of emerging I'll call it a micro profession at the moment, but I think it's definitely on the rise. But one death of the doula. challenges, death doula, yeah. And you can imagine straight away what a death doula does. Right? Anyone that's had a, had a child will, will immediately. Hey, babe, what you got there? This is a check from Carvana. I just sold my car to them. I went online and Carvana gave me an offer right away. Then they just picked up the car and gave me this. Well, it's a big check. Well, obviously you could put this towards your next car, or we could finally get that jacuzzi, or I could start taking tuba lessons, or I could quit my job and write my memoir. Or I can put it towards my next car with Carvana. Sorry, your check, not mine. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. draw that parallel. But some of the problems is just making these services scalable to people, particularly in a country like ours where we've got such geographic spread and, and difference. Um, so great services, but not enough of them and not enough awareness of them, again, in the face of you know really increasing need. And so, you know, just going back to what we were covering earlier, do you think the secularisation of our society, the move away from sort of religious organisations and maybe a reduced interaction with the with the medical setting has meant that people kind of are, are left a little bit on their own in terms of looking for guidance and how to process some of these difficult times? Yeah, I do. And I think we're just also, we're just hardwired as humans to hold denial as our strongest suit. So, um, yeah, most commonly people are just really overwhelmed and they're uncertain and they're unprepared as they go into this. And, and you know, a lot of our work at, at Violet is with the family and caregivers, so the group of people who are around the person is dying, and, and they're, they're really commonly having a really difficult time. Um, and, and part of what we're trying to do is to just slow things down and work with that group to help them uh, have more acceptance and understanding around exactly what's happening for the person they're caring for and, and be much better and, and more willing to talk about it. And where do you find best practice in this space? Because it's sort of underdeveloped in Australia. Where do you look to to sort of put all of this together, the infrastructure, the resources, the sort of evidence base and direction for people to uh, learn from? Look where we normally look. 
to those overseas counterparts who are probably five to 10 years ahead of us on the journey. And, and some of that is in, in um, more specialised and diverse parts of the medical profession. Um, there's some great work happening there, but there's also some really interesting technology um, emergence that, that we're looking at that are starting to think about what does this mean in a community? What does it mean in a family? Um, and how do you start to, to help people at a, in a really scalable way? You know, I was just thinking about um, the death of my grandmother. She was 97 when she passed last year. And we just, um, in, a, in the Jewish tradition, we had a thing called a consecration where um, after a year has passed, everyone gets together um, at the at the um, cemetery. And there's just a nice time to say a few prayers and do, you know, everyone can sort of give a speech or a little reflection. And um, it was quite interesting because I remember her dying was so hard and but we were lucky that she went um sort of at a good old age where she wasn't too distressed and she was still at home so mm-hmm. i think i think it was sort of one of the better end of life situations but i still don't think me or any of my family members were equipped to kind of um to give her the peace that she needed during some of the last few weeks of her life and, you know, even though we could say lovely things at the consecration and sort of enjoy the memories together as a group, there were no words that we could exchange to each other that were helpful or really to offer um, her other than to express our love and affection and support and just be nice and be around. And, yeah, sort of like there's just, a, I guess, a bit of regret there about um, I wish I had known a bit more about Violet and the work that you do then Um to maybe be a bit more useful. You've just described half the work, you know, actually helping people know, first of all, how to gently open and pace those conversations and then how to bring others along with them. You know, it's not easy. We're not really taught that or we may, if we're lucky enough, have it modelled to us um, sometimes, but it's not It's not something that people frequently come across. So that that is more than half of what we do um, through the work of, of Violet Guides. And, you know, I just love that you've, tapped into that idea of regret because that's another thing that I'm often in rooms waving my arms about because mm. we we talk about this um, gap between what people hope for and what happens. You know, we all would have a vision of what we would want um, in the last stage of our lives and, you know, according to the data, that's that 70% of us would want to be at home for as long as we can be surrounded by the right services and supports, but less than 15% get that experience. One in two people die in hospital in Australia today, and and that's just not delivering the right outcomes for people. It's also not delivering the right outcomes for the health system. Lisa, I can't tell you that, like, for me, the idea of dying in a hospital and even my grandma was just terrifying. Like, it's just... Like it, it sort of is like a worst nightmare kind of scenario, and I know that a lot of people from um, our grandparents, my grandparents, and my wife's grandparents' generation, their only wish, if you ask them what they want out of death, is to make sure it happens in their own home uh, when they are asleep or you know when they're not too ill. Um, it's it's that fear of being institutionalised towards the end and not having their familiarity or their support systems in place that is just the most scary thing. Absolutely it is. And, and, you know, aged care becomes a person's home in this life stage. So I'm including that when I'm talking about dying at home or in a home Mm -hmm. life. That's an important distinction to make. Um, You know, no one would argue that hospital is not a good place people to die for some for a small group of the population it's the safest depending on their condition or medical complexity but um there's nothing familiar supportive 
necessarily you know, the gentlest experience of, of someone's death um, in a hospital setting. What are you seeing in terms of the overseas experience about um, interesting uses of technology or uh, medical interventions or other things that are sort of making that end-of-life journey a bit easier for um, both people who are dying and also their families and carers and communities? Yeah, it's really varied, Mark, and it, depending on different countries and different legislative frameworks and, you know, in the UK and in some parts of Europe, the hospice model is so much stronger than what we have here. Um, and that is uh, that is always a really mostly a very positive experience for people in, in a hospice setting. But we've got a handful of hospices here in this country and it's certainly not um, the the policy direction is not taking us down one where we're going to build more hospices. So it's the role of, of aged care and ageing in place and home care um, that needs to deliver on that. But um, I guess what we're really curious about in the technology space is how you can work through technology to actually unlock this across the system. So how you start to uh, give businesses a way to participate for their customers and for their employees um, how you then, you know, through a B2B or, or a B2C model, how you start to really provide solutions that are at that sweet spot between human interaction and, and digital intervention. There's somewhere in the middle for this particular issue. Um, it can't sit at either end of the spectrum. It really does have to find that sweet spot in the middle. Have you done much thinking or having much conversation around the role of psilocybin in end-of-life care? Yeah, look, that's something that we... We've had conversations with our clinical committee about, and we've just chosen not to go down that path. You know, in a in a typical lean startup mode where organisations like ours die of indigestion really quickly, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was the, the sage words of, of one of my um, my colleagues and advisors. Yeah, you've got to stay really prioritised. So that's yeah. probably something that's a few horizons away from where we are now. I thought that might be the case, but I just thought I'd bring it up because I find that really interesting as a sort of model to give people um, at a medical level just a certain level of peace or acceptance of um, the next stage of life being death rather than just that, that shock of death itself. Uh, yeah, there's some big existential stuff in here, um, but there are some pretty simple and fundamental things that we've got to get right first in our yep. view, and that's where we're staying really focused. Makes a lot of sense. And so in doing this work, which I think is so important, um, there's a marketing challenge because death is not essentially, or the industry or the or the, the phase of death um, is not maybe on the top of people's excitement agenda. So how do you do that as a sort of startup not for profit organisation? So hard. And you're talking to someone with a brand background who wants to get yeah. it right. Um, yeah. It's hard to sell. It doesn't win votes. There are barriers in in how we kind of activate this both commercially and politically, which is why, you know, going back to your first question of why hasn't it been done yet, it's just not easy to do. Uh, what what we, if I guess if we were called something like the good death company, Mike, <laughs> you know, we'd probably have 3% of the population arriving and ready to talk to us and deal with us. But what we learned through um, a whole lot of research was that people need a pretty safe and reassuring and gentle entry to this topic and conversations about this topic. So that's really how we've, we've tried to be really thoughtful about designing Violet to do that, both in terms of the brand, the name, and the way people experience um, our support program. So our, our guides, who are our national volunteer network who deliver our, our support programs, they talk directly to the language. They use the language of death and dying. They're very... Um, 
they're clear. It's not a kind of an ocean of euphemisms, but they're really careful about how they get people there. You know, so it's about understanding who you're supporting, meeting them where they're at, and then bringing them through um, to be ready. Uh, because otherwise, you just um, you just frighten people. And like you know, I experienced that. I'm sure my father's not listening. Love him dearly, but um, you know, my father is one of those people that really struggles to talk about this. And you think with all the work that I've done, I would be better at opening that conversation with him. But it's still proving really, really hard. Yeah, and I think on both sides there's that challenge because, um, like for example, my father's seventy three, and I worry about him all the time. He's in he's in excellent health. I shouldn't worry about him, but we're, like beyond sort of coaxing him to keep up his uh, muscular and uh, cardiovascular exercise yeah. and to, to eat well and just keep working, um, that's sort of like the limit of my ability to engage with him on those topics before I think it gets a bit too worrisome. Yeah, yeah. And I, I always wonder, like, how and when do you start to have those conversations about um, not death, but I guess that kind of next stage of life, which leads to death, um, in a kind of non-threatening and loving way? Yeah, I think um, framing it as you have around the next stage of life is really important because that gives people a much gentler entry to the conversation. Um, and that can take a number of, of attempts, right? That's not something that necessarily lands the first time you attempt it. Um, I've done lots of talks and done a lot of videos on this idea of how you open the doors to those conversations. And sometimes it's a, a little chink of light that you can see. You can kind of take the conversation forward. Sometimes the door's closed. You've got to come back in a couple of weeks' time. Um, but it's, it's really important that we try and do these earlier and with a bit more frequency so that we can get a bit more used to it and it doesn't feel like such a scary taboo topic because we've already been there and we, we did an okay job last time we talked about it. The other the other watch out, I think, is our tendency to get very practical on that conversation, so to go straight to financial planning or estate planning, which are important but are kind of avoiding the more human conversation around what do I actually, what's really important to me in the last stage of my life? What what kind of person am I? Um, what's my identity? What are my wishes? And how do I talk about that with my family and my friends so that they can help me have the right kind of experience? Yeah, that's so well said. And for you, from a sort of personal and practical perspective, um, it must be challenging being a founder and CEO in a space that is inherently a little bit dark, you know, talking about being involved in the, the death space all the time. So how do you manage that and how do you kind of stay uh, positive and sort of upbeat and, you know, you've got to be so active in, in, in building something like this? Oh, it's not always easy. Um, I've been really diligent about getting support processes in place for my staff and for our volunteer guides but pretty commonly as a as a founder and as a CEO you overlook yourself sometimes and I've got to say like I'm feeling it this year more than I have in previous years and I think we are in general right we're all a bit more exhausted at the end of 2020 oh, yeah. than we have been so um I guess I, I try to get some support I, I try to do some coaching around that Mike because I I know I need to stay stay really strong to stay in it um, and that's about grit and perseverance but it's also about emotional resilience so yeah I'm it's one of the things I want to do better next year <laughs> with 
but it's not an easy part of the job and it's not easy to go into rooms and open up these conversations um, where people may not be as ready um, to do so. Yeah, and I think the fact that you're leading sort of like a national dialogue about a topic that most people would probably prefer to go to the dentist than actually confront <laughs> and talk about um, is inherently hard. And I, I think it's just, you know, it speaks to superb courage that you're doing it, doing it so well on such a national <laughs> scale. That's really, that's really, uh, thank you for saying that. And thank you for the way that you said that. No, it's very courageous and it's admirable. I am wanting to uh, learn how can people, you know, learn a bit more about what you're doing and how can they support your work and how can they also begin to have some of these conversations? What is the advice you would give people to sort of kick off this um, important dialogue in their own lives? Yeah, um, well, let's start with how they can find us. So I guess everything you need to know about the work of Violet is at violet.org.au. There's a whole lot of resources and content, um, articles, stories there that certainly talk about people's experience, but also talk about the things that we know are most important as you go through this, and all free, readily available. And you can also access our free guided support programs. Um, so that's where we match you with a, a Violet Guide. Um, who has lived experience and is really well trained and supported by us. So I just would really encourage anybody who is um, either in this experience now or for perhaps the people that this conversation might have just sparked a thought or a realisation that they might need support, just reach out. That is exactly what we're here to do um, and to help with. And we also help signpost to a range of other services that, that you may also need as you go through that. Um, back to the second half of the question, which is how to open it. I think every new conversation is is really a bit of an act of leadership in this space. So however you try it, however well you do it, we need to be um, just really appreciative of all of those efforts. And the most important thing is there's no perfect script. There's no perfect set of words. There's It's really about your kindness and your compassion. That matters far more than your vocabulary. Um, and I think alongside that, just being really mindful of timing, you know, the, the moments in time where you you think it is the right moment to lead this conversation and, and tone. Those, those things are, are really important. Uh, but there is a really good little video called Opening Doors, which is on, on YouTube and on our site where I talk, I don't know, probably for too long, maybe about four or five minutes, but just stepping you through some of the, um, some of the scenarios to, to give people some pretty practical tips. That's fantastic. And if people want to reach out and connect with you personally, can they do so? Of course. No, I'd love that. LinkedIn is probably the best place to land that, that, land that uh, reach out. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much to learn from today and I appreciate you having the courage to do what you're doing and to confront a really hard topic, but just to do it so well and openly as well. So thanks for joining me today and stick around. We'll have a little debrief. Hey, thanks, Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.